In the first three lessons that we had on James, Linda and Beth showed us the overall theme of his book. That is that we are to be doers of the word. And the NIV commentary calls that vital Christianity, and James would agree. It has to be alive. Show me your faith by your deeds, and also, for James, by how you use words. Linda described living by James's royal law as having an undivided heart that is rooted in God's wisdom. And last week, Beth showed us how even James's heated and angry words are really just intended to keep us humble and able to shower grace into other people's lives. And today, I'd like for us to take as our key verse, James 5, 8, where he says, be patient also, establish your hearts. If you have an NIV version, they've translated that as stand firm. And uh, in other versions, it says strengthen your hearts. But the Greek is sterexate tascardius. And if you speak Greek, I apologize because I don't, but I guessed at that pronunciation. But the old King James translated this as establish your hearts. And I like thinking about that image because if you think of transplanting a tree, you wanna dig that hole deep so that the roots go down and are firmly established. I don't know if you watched the Masters Golf Tournament on, on the weekend, but they had a, a windstorm come up and a storm and they cleared the, the thousands of people that were in the gallery and as they were leaving, 200 foot pine trees fell over, crushed some of the chairs that people had been sitting in. And if you looked at them, the roots were just a kind of flat ball. They didn't have deep roots. And so that's what I think James wants us to do, establish our hearts. Now chapter four described our hearts as sometimes a war zone. And uh, when our hearts are not established, we can end up being proud and judgmental and arrogant. And James finished that chapter with the statement that to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him, it is sin. And I would say that James is still using his angry voice when he opens chapter five because he says that the rich are in peril. These are people who not only fail to do good, but they actively do evil. And he starts off by saying, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. And in the older versions, it's weep and howl, you rich because of the misery that is coming upon you. And he talks to them about the things that they're going to lose. And these are all emblems or signs of how wealthy and powerful they are. And he says to them, those are temporary and they're fragile and you will lose them. Your barns full of harvested grain will rot. Your elegant clothing that shows everyone how wealthy you are and how important you are going to be eaten by moths. And that gold and silver that you've accumulated because it's permanent, it's going to corrode away. And he's saying the same things that his big brother Jesus had said 
over in Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up treasures in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And we see where these people's heart is and they will lose what their hearts desire. And he condemns their deeds. First of all, he says, you have hoarded wealth. You never have enough. Your possessions mean everything to you and they own you while others live in poverty and need and it doesn't matter. He accuses them of fraud. You haven't paid your workers and he says their cries go up to heaven. In Deuteronomy 24, God had commanded the Israelites to pay their laborers daily because a day without pay meant a day without food. They depended on this simply to meet their most basic needs. And these wealthy people had withheld those wages. And this was in a time of harvest. The barns were full, but they kept their wealth. And then self-indulgence, that feeling that I deserve this. I want my luxuries and I don't care if others are destitute. He says to them, you've murdered and condemned those people. I think it's probably not literal murder that he's talking about here. Kent Hughes calls this judicial murder because if you're wealthy and you can corrupt the courts and bribe the judges to get your desired outcome, you can destroy someone's livelihood and that may be the equivalent of killing them if you take away their ability to earn daily bread. So it goes back to what he said in 417. Not only did they not, uh, they knew to do good and didn't do it, but they were actively doing evil to these workers. And he talks about their sure punishment. What will all this look like in the judgment? Their hearts will be unveiled, he says. The Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, will judge you. That name, Lord Sabaoth, is God's warrior name. And he says, that's coming for you. And he said, uh, these things will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. These are really harsh words. And it's not entirely clear whether James is speaking to specific believers who were wealthy and were misusing their wealth or whether he's speaking about uh, the corruption that riches had brought to the, uh, the wealthy in the ancient world at large. But at any rate, He's very angry and says that these things will be judged. And then beginning in verse seven, he turns his attention from those evil deeds to what it looks like to have an established heart. And I think that he gives us four specific ways in which we give evidence of our salvation. Remember, that's the theme that says, show me your faith by your works. Give me evidence of this salvation you say you have. And two of the qualities that he talks about are interior in our character, and two of them are exterior in developing an established heart. So first he says, be patient, not grumbling against each other. Uh, What does grumbling do? It destroys the unity of the body. It's like what Paul says, 
The hand is upset because it's not an eye, and the foot wants to be a hand. And when that sort of grumbling occurs, the unity is broken. And he talks about the farmer as an example. And I think it's true of farmers and ranchers uh, in general. And I think there are some things that we learn about them. First, he says, have patience. The farmer plants the seed, the rancher buys the young calves, and then has to wait until it's time to harvest or to sell the, the steers, like Barbara Engel does. And I thought about some other things about farmers. One is that the farmer is always working. You can't just plant in May and then sit on your porch until August and it's time for uh, the harvest. You have to continually keep working. The second thing is that the farmer expects fruit. The farmer knows if I plant good seed, if I buy good calves, I will have good results from that. And then finally, the farmer and the rancher and all of us have to depend on what God sends. If there are plentiful rains, that's great. If there's drought, it's not so great. But it's whatever God sends that will determine the outcome. So he says, have patience. And add to that patience the second quality, which is perseverance. And he says in verse 10, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As we look back, especially through the Old Testament, we see the prophets with their established hearts, like Jeremiah and Moses and Hosea. They had not merely patience, but perseverance and boldness. Jeremiah, for years, warned the wicked kings of the exile that was going to be visited upon Israel. And for his troubles, they threw him into a pit full of mud that he had to be rescued from. Moses uh, listened to God, confronted Pharaoh, and led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then had to put up with them for 40 years as they complained and disobeyed and just challenged him whenever they could. And Hosea spent years suffering because of an unfaithful wife that God had commanded him to marry. All of these continued to persevere and to speak God's word to kings and ordinary people. And so James commends their perseverance. And then verse 11, he says, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You had heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. We got to study that this year, and we saw in Job that established heart. His suffering, Job lost everything, even including his children. And then he suffered physically in horrible ways uh, that we, can, we, we can't imagine. And also, he had friends who came and continually accused him of gross sin, and that surely was the cause of all those calamities. But Job makes declarations, and two of the most famous are in Job 13, 15. He declares, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And in 1925, Handel made this famous. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth in the last day. Job's rewarded. We know that God restored to him 
even more than everything that he had lost. But his very great reward was that Job knew God as never before. And I noticed in the, the study guide that today in your lesson, uh, chapter, uh, question four, I think, it asked you to share in your groups times that you had come through uh, testing, suffering, and so on, and how God brought you through that. And so I'm hoping that your experience is the same as Job's, that you know God as never before because of what he brought you through. So we want to know if we can say that. And then at that point in chapter 5, James turns his attention to some practical matters in our interactions with other people. We're moving from the interior qualities of patience and perseverance to exterior. First, he says, do not swear. Now, this is not using swear words, although it is completely obvious that no Christian should ever be known for having a potty mouth or swearing or using God's name lightly. My personal dislike pet peeve is, oh my God, you know that one? OMG, they shorten it because of that. None of that is appropriate for us, but that's not really what James is talking about. And it's not forbidding you to make a solemn oath. It is not forbidding you to take uh, the oath in a courtroom. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or to make a vow before God that you intend to keep. But the problem was, and this was also true uh, in, in Matthew when Jesus is saying the very same thing that, that James says, that people were simply using empty and flippant words. Their language was just, oh, all about this and all about that and over-exaggeration and so on. So they felt that they needed to intensify what they were saying by swearing, by the temple, by the beards of the prophets, on my mother's grave, those sorts of things. And that will make you believe. Probably when you were growing up, you said, cross my heart and hope to die. Believe me this time. And Jesus said the same thing that James does. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. We ought to be known for being truthful, that people can believe us at the first thing that we say. And the truth is serious. Um, what we see in, in Matthew 26 is Peter in the courtyard, remember? While Jesus is being tried. And someone says to him, you were with him. And the first thing that it says is, he swore, I do not know him. And then again, you were with him. And then he steps it up. He, said, he denies it with an oath. Maybe it was by the temple, by the sacrifices, by the prophets. I do not know him. And then third, he began to curse and swear, I do not know him. So sometimes those oaths simply cover up the lie. And we see the seriousness of truth in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira come with an offering, land that they've sold and they bring the money. And Peter asks them, is this all of it? Because that's what they had said. And they uh, gave their word, yes, this is all of it. 
and you know what happens. They are struck dead. And Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. So truth is serious. And James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he moves then from how we speak to others to how we speak to God. And James admonishes us to pray and pray and pray. He says, pray at all times. Get in the habit of talking to God about everything. Sometimes we think of prayer as some sort of a special talent or something that we do at specific times. We pray at the opening of a church meeting or at the close of of a a Sunday school class or something like that, or at mealtimes. And sometimes we think of it as being technique. Some people just know how to do it so well. I I don't know the right words, and maybe God doesn't really want to hear from me at all. I'm not that important. Prayer is not a special gift or a special talent or skill. It is not one of the spiritual gifts, and it's not one of the fruits of the Spirit. Patience and perseverance are fruit of the Spirit, and we should ask for those. But prayer is a little like breathing, Now, I would guess that some of you out there can hold your breath longer than others. That's great. But we all need that oxygen. It's not a special skill that we have. And prayer ought to be just as natural as that need for oxygen. And that's why James can say, pray at all times. If you're in trouble, talk to the Lord. Pray about your finances. Pray about your children's lives. Pray about your own health and well-being. Pray about the state of the country. You need a repairman for your refrigerator. Pray about that. When you hear a, a, a siren, pray. Pray for the people driving that ambulance or that police car and for the people at the other end of that call. When you need a parking spot, pray. Talk to the Lord. And you can talk to the Father. You can talk to Jesus. You can talk to the Holy Spirit. But continue talking throughout for everything that you need and then enjoy James says sing hymns well you can sing and and praise is just praying thank yous to the Lord you can you can sing you can whisper you can shout you can dance you can do all sorts of things so you give him praise when there's a reconciliation that happens that you're part of when you hear about a new baby give praise When you've learned something new, give praise. When a particular Bible verse blesses you, thank him for that. When you get that parking spot, or in my case yesterday, when the computer's black screen finally came back to life and we had an outline. Although this morning when I got here, I discovered that the outline that I had sent over only had one line of text in it. (laughs) But you give thanks anyway. Okay. And then he talks about praying in sickness. And he brings up the anointing by elders. Now, I think that we need to understand this is not some sort of formula that has a guaranteed result. Uh, Kelly, I think, taught us about this in the very first lesson that we had, that the principles and promises that you see in these wisdom books are general truths. 
but they are not some sort of hard and fast magic set of words that always uh, will guarantee the result that you want. And I think uh, all of the commentators and your own pastors will tell you that sometimes the elders pray and anoint people with oil and they are healed and sometimes they are not. Sometimes people are healed without any special anointing. But I think what James is, is um, emphasizing here is that yes, we need to develop personal prayer. We need to be women who pray all the time. But also there's a role for corporate prayer. There's a, there's a role for the church to be speaking as the church. And I think that's described by these elders taking it as one of their responsibilities and privileges to pray for those who are sick. And James also mentions the role of sin and confession. Again, we need to not make the mistake that Job's friends made. Remember, they said to Job, all of these calamities are because of some sins that you have committed and you are stubbornly refusing to admit to those things. And James says, sometimes sin does produce illness, weakness, even death. But again, it is not all the time that that's the cause and the effect. And I think the important thing here is not to focus on that, but to focus on the fact that forgiveness is freely offered. If there is sin, it can be confessed and repented of, and God wants to forgive you and bring you back to complete health and wellness in your soul. Then in verse, verses 17 and 18, he gives us the example of Elijah. And when he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effectively, that's actually a, a logical tautology, which is saying basically an effective prayer is really effective. So that doesn't help us a lot. But he gives us the example of Elijah, of perseverance and prayer. Uh, Elijah prayed and the drought came. And Elijah prayed again, and the rain came. I would like you to note that even when Elijah had been told by God that the rain was going to come, so get off the mountain and, and tell the king that the rain's going to come, Elijah sat down and prayed, and he prayed again, and he prayed again. He had to pray seven times before that little cloud appeared that would eventually bring rain. So perseverance is important. But I think what James is saying, there's a surprise here. Not that Elijah prayed for drought and rain and was answered, but that Elijah was just like us. That that same perseverance, that same ability to call on the resources of heaven is yours. Because he wasn't some sort of super saint or the magical prophet who could do things like that. He was just like us. And prayer works. So what do we have here as we get to the last couple of verses? We've seen that James can be very harsh at times. Uh, Beth called his words heated sometimes. Weep and howl, you rich, that sort of thing. But I think the last verses here show us something about, about James's heart, and this is what he wants us to see. 
He says in 19 and 20, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. James says we can rescue and restore. God wants to see the sinner rescued and restored. And it's an implied promise. Sin is dangerous, but restoration is possible. And it may be through your words. Maybe you will talk to someone and correct them about what they're doing. Maybe you'll point out some biblical truth. Maybe you'll give some admonition. And this may be helpful for people for whom you have some authority or influence. But sometimes you don't. So what do you do? You pray. You pray that they will be brought back and restored and rescued. And sometimes you just do deeds of love. In our less, uh, leaders meeting yesterday, uh, people raised up family members who are in bad places. And the last resort is simply, I will continue to show that person that I love them. And so that may be the way that you do that. Because an established heart says, I will not give up on my brother, my child, my sister, and I will not give up on God. So if we back off a little bit from these specific things here, we see that there's a particular frame of reference or a background to all that James says here. And that is also in verse eight where we started. He says, my brothers, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws near. There are 20 verses in this chapter and four of them mention the coming of the Lord. And I was curious about this because here's James closing off his letter to the churches. And I thought, well, is this a theme that we see earlier? And I went back this morning and read the first four chapters and he doesn't bring it up overtly as he does here. But four times he says, for the coming of the Lord is near. And that's the framework by which we should see all of these pieces of advice and wisdom and admonition because the Lord is coming back. And to people like the rich who are doing evil deeds and whose words don't match, or whose deeds don't match their confession of faith, he says, he's coming and judgment will come with him for those evil deeds. But to the brothers, he says in verse seven, keep his coming in view. Not just don't do evil, but do those things that come from an established heart and the Lord will be your reward. There are rewards coming with him, but there's also joy and blessing just in being his. Uh, at Norma Jeffrey on service on Saturday, um, so many people, you know, they, they were pastors in various churches and Norma was one of those women that we all love to have uh, in our lives. Uh, I didn't know her very well at all, but so many people talked about uh, the things that she would do. She taught classes, she wrote letters of encouragement, she kept in touch with people, she made meals, she was, was hospitable and all of these sorts of things. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things were represented by what people said. And when Jim gave the, the, uh, the eulogy, the, the message, he said, you know, we've heard this morning about so many things that Norma did. 
And he, he said, Norma didn't do those things because she was trying to please God and do good things so that he would approve of her. Her heart was so focused on the love of Christ that those things just flowed out of it. And that's what we want to see. And we keep that in mind as we have that framework that the Lord is near. And the good news is, by the way, that we are 2,000 years closer than James was <laughs> at that particular time. So as I thought back over what we have here in James, and we look at all of the wisdom literature that we've looked at, and we ask the question, how do we have an established heart and how do we live wisely? How do we measure up to David and Solomon and the writers of Job and Ecclesiastes and all of the others and James? Well, the good news is that we have more than any of those Old Testament writers had. Did you realize that? We know what they didn't know and they could only vaguely guess at it. We know that God was going to accomplish our salvation by sending Jesus to die on the cross and be resurrected. So we know that. They didn't know it. And we also know and have what Jesus promised to give us. He says, wait for the gift of my Father, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit poured out on all who believe. They didn't have that. We also have more than the Apostle James himself, and he's the brother of Jesus. His letter is probably the first one of the apostolic letter, letters to us in the New Testament. So we have all of the Old Testament, we have the four Gospels, we have the Book of Acts, and we have 22 letters to the churches from Paul, James, John, Peter, Jude, and whoever it was who wrote the Book of Hebrews. I'm anxious to find that out when I get to heaven. We also have 2,000 years of church history with its mistakes and its triumphs to build us up. And remember that there's one final thing that we can count on in the work of establishing our hearts, and that's that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on your side. That's what they want to produce in your life. So today, let's ask him for the very thing that he wants to give us, a heart that is fully established in him. Let's pray, and then we're gonna sing that last verse. Lord, thank you. You just shower us with your goodness and your blessing. You've given us your son, and you've given us your spirit. So Lord, just open our hearts, enlarge them, and establish them in you. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.